0: Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lavren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lavren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset. Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book 1. The Wreath Part 3. Lavrens Björgolfsson Chapter 8 That year was an unusually good one in all the valleys of the north. The hay was abundant, and it was all safely harvested, Everyone returned home from the mountain pastures with fattened livestock and great quantities of butter and cheese, and they had been mercifully free of predators that year. The grain stood so high that few people could remember ever seeing it look so fine. The crops ripened well and were bounteous, and the weather was the best it could be. Between St. Bartholomew's Day and the Feast of the Birth of Mary, During the time when frosty nights were most likely, it rained a little and the weather was warm and overcast, but after that the harvest month proceeded with sunshine and wind and mild hazy nights. By the week after Michaelmas, most of the grain had been brought in throughout the valley. At Jurengard they were toiling and preparing for the great wedding. For the past two months, Kristen had been so busy from morning to night every single day that she had had little time to worry about anything but her work. She could see that her breasts had grown heavier, and that her small pink nipples had turned brown and were as tender as wounds every morning when she had to get out of bed in the cold. But the pain passed as soon as she warmed up from her work, and then she thought only of what she had to do before nightfall. Sometimes, when she straightened up to stretch out her back and paused to rest for a moment, she would notice that what she was carrying in her womb was growing heavy, but she was still just as slender and trim in appearance. She smoothed her hands over her long, fine hips. No, she didn't want to worry about it now. At times, she would suddenly think, with a prickling sense of longing, that in a month or two she would be able to feel life inside her. By that time, she would be at Husabee. Maybe Erland would be pleased. She closed her eyes and bit down on her betrothal ring. She saw Erland's face, pale with emotion, when he stood up in the high loft and spoke the betrothal vows in a loud, clear voice. As God is my witness, along with these men who stand before me, I, Erland Nikolaussen, promise myself to Kristen Lovren's daughter in accordance with the laws of God and men, on such conditions as have been presented to these witnesses who stand here with us, that I shall possess you as my wife, and you shall possess me as your husband as long as we both shall live, that we shall live together in matrimony with all such communion as God's laws and the laws of the land acknowledge. She was running errands across the courtyard, going from building to building, and she stopped for a moment. The mountain ash was full of berries this year. It would be a snowy winter, and the sun was shining over the pale fields where the sheaves of grain stood piled on poles. If only the weather would hold until the wedding. Laurens held firm to his intention that his daughter should be married in a church. It was therefore decided that this would take place in the chapel at Sundbu, On Saturday, the bridal procession would ride over the mountains to Vaga. They would stay the night at Sundbu and the neighboring farms, and then ride back on Sunday after the wedding mass. On the same evening, after Vespers, when the Sabbath was over, the wedding would be celebrated and Lovrens would give his daughter away to Erland, and after midnight, the bride and groom would be escorted to bed. On Friday, in the afternoon, Kristen was standing on the gallery of the high loft, watching the travelers who came riding from the north, past the burned church on the hill. It was Erland with all his groomsmen. She strained to distinguish him from the others. They were not allowed to see each other. No man could see her until she was led out in the morning, wearing her bridal clothes. At the place where the road turned toward Jurengard, several women pulled away from the group. The men continued on toward Laugropru, where they would spend the night. Kristen went downstairs to welcome the guests. She felt so tired after her bath, and her scalp ached terribly. Her mother had rinsed her hair in a strong lye solution to give it a bright sheen for the next day. Fru Asild Gauta's daughter slipped down from her saddle into Lavren's arms. How lissome and young she keeps herself, thought Kristen. Her daughter-in-law, Katrine, Sir Munan's wife, almost looked older than she did. She was tall and stout, her eyes and skin colorless. It's strange, thought Kristen, that she's ugly and he's unfaithful, and yet people say that they get on well together. Two of Sir Bard Paterson's daughters had also come, one of them married, the other not. They were neither ugly nor beautiful. They looked trustworthy and kind, but seemed quite reserved with strangers. Lawrence thanked them courteously for their willingness to honor this wedding, and for making the long journey so late in the fall. Erland was raised by our father when he was a boy, said the older sister, and she stepped forward to greet Kristin. Then two young men came trotting briskly into the courtyard. They leaped from their horses and ran laughing toward Kristin, who dashed into the house and hid. They were Trond Yasling's young sons, handsome and promising boys. They brought with them the bridal crown from Sundbu in a chest. Trond and his wife wouldn't come to Jurengard until Sunday after the mass. Kristen had fled into the hearth room, and Fru Asyld had followed. She placed her hands on Kristen's shoulders and pulled her face down to her own for a kiss. I'm glad that I shall see this day said Fru Asild. She noticed, as she held Kristen's hands, how gaunt they had become. She saw that the bride had also grown thin, but her bosom was full. All the lines of her face had become leaner and more delicate than before. In the shadow of her thick, damp hair, her temples seemed slightly hollowed. Her cheeks were no longer round, and her fresh complexion had faded but Kristen's eyes had grown much larger and darker. Fru Asild kissed her again. I see you've had much to struggle with, Kristen, she said. I'll give you something to drink tonight so you'll be rested and fresh in the morning. Kristen's lips began to quiver. Hush, said Fru Ossield, patting her hand. I'm looking forward to dressing you in your finery. No one will ever see a lovelier bride than you shall be tomorrow. Lovrens rode over to Laugerbru to dine with his guests who were staying there. The men could not praise the food enough. A better Friday supper could not be had even in the richest cloister. There was rye flour porridge, boiled beans, and white bread, and the fish that was served was trout, both salted and fresh, and long strips of dried halibut. Gradually, as they helped themselves to the ale, The men became more and more boisterous, and their teasing of the bridegroom became more and more vulgar. All of Erlon's groomsmen were much younger than he was. His own peers and friends had all become married men long ago. Now the men joked about the fact that he was so old and would lie in the bridal bed for the first time. Some of Erlon's older kinsmen, who were still rather sober, were afraid that with each new word uttered, the talk might shift to subjects that would be better left untouched. Sir Bard of Hesnes kept an eye on Lovrens. He was drinking heavily, but it didn't look as if the ale was making him any happier as he sat there in the high seat. His face grew more and more tense as his gaze grew stonier. But Erland, who was sitting to the right of his father-in-law, parried the teasing merrily and laughed a good deal. His face was red and his eyes sparkled. Suddenly, Lavrens bellowed, That wagon, son in law. Well, I think of it. What did you do with the wagon that you borrowed from me this past summer? Wagon? said Erland. Don't you remember that you borrowed a wagon from me last summer? God knows it was a good wagon. I'll probably never see a better one, because I was here myself when it was built on this farm. You promised and you swore. As I can testify before God and my house servants can verify that you promised you would bring it back to me but you haven't kept your word. Some of the guests shouted that this was nothing to talk about right now but Lawrence pounded on the table and swore that he would find out what Erlon had done with his wagon. Oh, it's probably still at the farm on the headland where we took the vote out to Vieuix, said Erlon indifferently. I didn't think it was so important. You see, father-in-law, it was a long and arduous journey with the cart load through the valleys, so by the time we reached the fjord, none of my men had a mind to travel the whole way back with the wagon and then over the mountains north to Nidaros. So I thought I could wait for the time being. No. May the devil seize me right here where I'm sitting if I've ever heard the likes of this! Lovrens interrupted him. What kind of people do you employ in your household? Is it you or your men who decide where they will or will not go? Erlon shrugged his shoulders. It's true that many things have not been as they should be in my home. The wagon will be sent back south to you when Kristen and I journey that way. My dear father-in-law, he said with a smile, putting out his hand, you must know that now everything will be different, and I will be too, now that Kristen will be coming home as my wife. The matter of the wagon was unfortunate, but I promise you, this will be the last time you shall have reason to complain about me. Dear Lovrens, said Bard Paterson, reconcile yourself with him over this paltry matter. A paltry matter or a great one, began Lovrens, but then he stopped himself and shook hands with Erland. Soon afterward he left, and the guests at Lagerbrew went to find their beds for the night. On Saturday before noon, the women and maidens were busy in the old loft. Some were making up the bridal bed, while others were helping the bride to finish dressing. Ronfred had chosen this building for the bridal house, because it was the smallest of the lofts. They could house many more guests in the new loft over the storeroom, and it was the bedchamber they had used themselves in the summertime when Kristen was small before Lovrenz had built the High Loft House, where they now lived both summer and winter. But the old storehouse was undoubtedly also the loveliest building on the farm, ever since Lovrenz had had it rebuilt. It had been in a state of disrepair when they moved to Jurengard. It was now decorated with the most beautiful carvings both inside and out, and the loft was not large, so it was easier to adorn it with tapestries and weavings and pelts. The bridal bed had been made ready with silk-covered pillows, and lovely blankets had been hung all around as draperies. Over the furs and woolen blankets had been spread an embroidered silk coverlet. Ronfred and several women were hanging tapestries up on the timbered walls and placing cushions on the benches. Kristen was sitting in an armchair that had been carried up to the loft. She was wearing her scarlet bridal gown. Large brooches held it together at her breast, and closed the yellow silk shift at the neck. Golden armbands gleamed on the yellow silk sleeves. A gilded silver belt had been wrapped three times around her waist, and around her neck and on her bosom lay necklace upon necklace, and on top of them all lay her father's old gold chain with the large reliquary cross. Her hands, which lay in her lap, were heavy with rings. Fru Asield was standing behind her chair, brushing out Kristen's thick, golden-brown hair. Tomorrow you will wear it loose for the last time, she said with a smile, winding around Kristen's head the red and green silk cords that would support the crown. Then the women gathered around the bride. Ronfrid and Girid of Skog brought over from the table the great bridal crown of the Yesling family. It was completely gilded, The tips alternated between crosses and clover leaves, and the circlet was set with rock crystals. They pressed it down onto the bride's head. Ronfrid was pale, and her hands shook as she did this. Kristen slowly rose to her feet. Jesus, how heavy it was to bear all that silver and gold. Then Fru Asiel took her by the hand and led her forward to a large water basin while the bridesmaids threw open the door to let in the sun and brighten up the loft. "'Look at yourself now, Kristen,' said Fruassild, and Kristen bent over the basin. She saw her own face rise up, white from the water. It came so close that she could see the golden crown above. So many light and dark shadows played all around her reflection. There was something she was just about to remember, and suddenly she felt as if she would faint away. She gripped the edge of the basin. Then Fru Ossild placed her hand on top of hers and dug in her nails so hard that Kristen came to her senses. The sound of lure horns came from the bridge. People shouted from the courtyard that now the bridegroom had arrived with his entourage. The women led Kristen out onto the gallery. The courtyard was swarming with horses, magnificently bridled, and people in festive dress. Everything glittered and gleamed in the sun. Kristen stared past everything, out toward the valley. Her village lay bright and still beneath a thin, hazy blue mist. And out of the mist towered the mountains, gray with scree and black with forests and the sun poured its light down into the basin of the valley from a cloudless sky. She hadn't noticed it before, but all the leaves had fallen from the trees, and the groves shone silver-gray and naked. Only the alder thicket along the river still had a little faded green in the crowns of the trees, and a few birches held on to some pale yellow leaves at the very tips of their branches. But the trees were almost bare, except the mountain ash, which was still shining with brownish-red foliage surrounding the blood-red berries. In the still, warm day, the acrid smell of autumn rose up from the ash-colored blanket of fallen leaves spread all around. If not for the mountain ash trees, it might have been springtime, except for the silence, because it was autumn quiet. So quiet. Every time the lure horn ceased, No sound was heard from the village, but the clinking of bells from the fallow and harvested fields where the cattle were grazing. The river was small and low, and it flowed so quietly, it was nothing more than tiny currents trickling between the sandbars and the heavy shoals of white stones worn smooth. No streams rushed down the slopes. It had been such a dry autumn. There were glints of moisture all over the fields, but it was only the dampness that always seeped up from the earth in the fall, no matter how hot the day or how clear the sky. The throng of people down in the courtyard parted to make way for the bridegroom's entourage. The young groomsmen rode forward. There was a ripple of excitement among the women on the gallery. Fru Ossield was standing next to the bride. Be strong now, Kristen, she said. It won't be long before you are safely under the wimple of a married woman. Kristen nodded helplessly. She could feel how terribly pale her face was. I'm much too pale a bride, she murmured. You are the loveliest bride, replied Asild. And there's Erland. It would be hard to find a more handsome pair than the two of you. Erland rode forward beneath the gallery. He leaped from his horse, agile and unhampered by the heavy drapery of his clothing. Kristen thought he was so handsome that her whole body ached. He was dressed in dark attire, a silk surcoat, pale brown interwoven with a black-and-white pattern, ankle-length and slit at the sides. Around his waist he wore a gold-studded belt, and on his left hip a sword with gold on the hilt and scabbard. Over his shoulders hung a heavy, dark-blue velvet cape, and on his black hair he wore a black French silk cap, which was sheared like wings at the sides, and ended in two long streamers, one of which was draped across his chest from his left shoulder and then thrown back over the other. Erland greeted his bride, went over to her horse, and stood there with his hand on the saddle-bow as Lovrens climbed the stairs. Kristen felt so awed and dizzy faced with all this splendor. Her father seemed a stranger in the formal green velvet surcoat that reached to his ankles, but her mother's face was ashen white beneath the wimple she wore in her red silk dress. Ronfred came over and placed the cloak around her daughter. Then Lovrens took the bride's hand and led her down to Erland, who lifted her up onto her horse and then mounted his own. They sat there, side by side, in front of the bridal loft as the procession began to pass through the farm gates. First the priests, Sira Eirik and Sira Tormod from Ulfsvold, and a brother of the cross from Hamar who was a friend of Lovren's. Next came the groomsmen and the maidens, two by two, and then it was time for Erland and Kristen to ride forward. After them followed the bride's parents, kinsmen, friends, and guests in long lines, riding between the fences out to the village road. A long stretch of the road was strewn with clusters of mountain ashberries, spruce boughs, and the last white chamomile blossoms of the autumn. People stood along the road as the procession passed, greeting it with cheers. On Sunday, just after sundown, the mounted procession returned to Jurengard, Through the first patches of twilight, the bonfire shone red from the courtyard of the bridal farm. Musicians and fiddlers sang and played their drums and fiddles as the group rode toward the warm red glow. Kristen was about to collapse when Erland lifted her down from her horse in front of the gallery to the high loft. I was so cold crossing the mountain, she whispered. I'm so tired. She stood still for a moment. When she climbed the stairway to the loft, she swayed on every step. Up in the high loft, the frozen wedding guests soon had the warmth restored to their bodies. It was hot from all the candles burning in the room. Steaming hot food was served, and wine and mead and strong ale were passed around. The din of voices and the sounds of people eating droned in Kristen's ears. She sat there, unable to get warm. Her cheeks began to burn after a while, but her feet refused to thaw out, and shivers of cold ran down her spine. All the heavy gold forced her to lean forward as she sat in the high seat at Erland's side. Every time the bridegroom drank a toast to her, she had to look at the red blotches and patches that were so evident on his face now that he was warming up after the ride in the cold air. They were the marks of the burns from that summer. A terrible fear had come over her from the evening before, while they were at dinner at Sundbu, when she felt the vacant stare of Bjorn Gunnarsson on her and Erland, eyes that did not blink and did not waver. They had dressed Herr Bjorn in knight's clothing. He looked like a dead man who had been conjured back to life. That night she shared a bed with Fru Asild, who was the bridegroom's closest kinswoman. "'What's the matter with you, Kristen?' asked Asield a little impatiently. "'You must be strong now, and not so despondent.' "'I'm thinking about all the people we have hurt so that we could live to see this day,' said Kristen, shivering. "'It wasn't easy for you two, either,' said Fruasield. "'Not for Erland, and I imagine it's been even harder for you.' "'I'm thinking about those helpless children of his,' said the bride in the same tone as before. I wonder whether they know that their father is celebrating his wedding today. Think about your own child, said Fruasield. Be glad that you're celebrating your wedding with the one who is the father. Kristen lay still for a while, helplessly dizzy. It was so pleasant to hear it mentioned, what had occupied her mind every single day for three months or more, though she hadn't been able to breathe a word about it to a living soul but this helped her for only a moment. "'I'm thinking about the woman who had to pay with her life because she loved Erland,' she whispered, trembling. "'You may have to pay with your own life before you're half a year older,' said Fru Asield harshly. "'Be happy while you can.' "'What should I say to you, Kristen?' the old woman continued in despair. "'Have you lost all your courage?' The time will come soon enough when the two of you will have to pay for everything that you've taken. Have no fear of that. But Kristen felt as if one landslide after another were ravaging her soul. Everything was being torn down that she had built up since that terrifying day at Haugen. During those first days, she had simply thought, wildly and blindly, that she had to hold out. She had to hold out one day at a time. And she had held out until things became easier, quite easy in the end, when she had cast off all thoughts except one, that now their wedding would take place at last. Erland's wedding, at last. She and Erland knelt together during the wedding mass, but it was all like a hallucination. The candles, the paintings, the shining vessels, the priests dressed in linen albs and long chasubles. All those people who had known her in the past seemed like dream images as they stood there, filling the church in their unfamiliar festive garb. But Herr Bjorn was leaning against a pillar and looking at them with his dead eyes, and she thought that the other dead one must have come back with him in his arms. She tried to look up at the painting of Saint Olaf. He stood there, pink and white and handsome, leaning on his axe, treading his own sinful human form underfoot, but Herr Bjorn drew her eyes, and next to him she saw Eline Orm's dead countenance. She was looking at them with indifference. They had trampled over her in order to get here, and she did not begrudge them that. She had risen up and cast off all the stones that Kristen had striven so hard to place over the dead. Erlon's squandered youth His honor and well-being, the good graces of his friends, the health of his soul. The dead woman shook them all off. He wanted me and I wanted him. You wanted him and he wanted you, said Aline. I had to pay and he must pay and you must pay when your time comes. When the sin is consummated, it will give birth to death. Kristen felt that she was kneeling with Erland on a cold stone. He knelt with the red, singed patches on his pale face. She knelt beneath the heavy bridal crown and felt the crushing, oppressive weight in her womb, the burden of sin she was carrying. She had played and romped with her sin, measuring it out as if in a child's game. Holy virgin! Soon it would be time for it to lie fully formed before her looking at her with living eyes, revealing to her the brands of her sin, the hideous deformity of sin, striking hatefully with the misshapen hands at his mother's breast. After she had borne her child, after she had seen the marks of sin on him and loved him the way she had loved her sin, then the game would be played to the end. Kristen thought— What if she screamed now so that her voice pierced through the song, and the deep droning male voices, and reverberated out over the crowd? Would she then be rid of Aline's face? Would life appear in the dead man's eyes? But she clenched her teeth together. Holy King Olaf, I call to you. Among all those in heaven, I beg you for help, for I know that you loved God's righteousness above all else. I beseech you to protect the innocent one who is in my womb. Turn God's anger away from the innocent. Turn it toward me. Amen, in the precious name of the Lord. My children are innocent, said Aline. Yet there is no room for them in a land where Christian people live. Your child was conceived out of wedlock just as my children were. You can no more demand justice for your child in the land you have strayed from than I could demand it for mine. Holy Olaf I beg for mercy nevertheless I beg for compassion for my son take him under your protection then I will carry him to your church in my bare feet I will bring my golden crown to you and place it on your altar if you will help me amen amen Her face was as rigid as stone she was trying so hard to keep herself calm but her body trembled and shuddered as she knelt there and was married to Eirland and now Kristen sat beside him in the high seat at home and sensed everything around her as a mere illusion in the delirium of fever. There were musicians playing on harps and fiddles in the high loft. Singing and music came from the room below and from out in the courtyard. A reddish glow from the fire outside was visible whenever servants came through the door, carrying things back and forth. Everyone stood up around the table. She stood between her father and Erland. Her father announced in a loud voice that now he had given his daughter Kristen to Erland Niklausen as his wife. Erland thanked his father-in-law and all the good people who had gathered to honor him and his wife. Then they told Kristen to sit down, and Erland placed his wedding gifts in her lap. Sarah Eirich and Sir Munon Bartson unrolled documents and read off a list of their property. The groomsmen stood by with spears in hand, pounding the shafts on the floor now and then during the reading and whenever gifts or money bags were placed on the table. The tabletops and trestles were removed. Erland led her out onto the floor, and they danced. Kristen thought, Our bridesmaids and groomsmen are much too young for us. Everyone who grew up with us has moved away from this region. How can it be that we have come back here? You seem so strange, Kristen whispered Erland as they danced. I'm afraid for you, Kristen. Aren't you happy? They went from building to building and greeted their guests. All the rooms were filled with many candles, and people were drinking and singing and dancing everywhere. Kristen felt as though everything was so unfamiliar at home, and she had lost all sense of time. The hours and the images flowed around each other, oddly disconnected. The autumn night was mild. There were fiddlers in the courtyard, too, and people dancing around the bonfire. They shouted that the bride and groom must also do them the honor, so Kristen danced with Erland in the cold, dew-laden courtyard. That seemed to wake her up a little, and her head felt clearer. Out in the darkness, a light band of fog hovered over the rushing river. The mountains stood pitch black against the star-strewn sky. Erland led her away from the dance and crushed her to him in the darkness beneath an overhanging gallery. I haven't even told you that you're beautiful, so beautiful, and so lovely. Your cheeks are as red as flames. He pressed his cheek against hers as he spoke. Kristen, what's the matter? I'm just so tired, so tired, she whispered in reply. Soon we'll go in and sleep. "'said the bridegroom, looking up at the sky. "'The Milky Way had swung around "'and was stretching almost due north and south. "'Do you know we've never spent a whole night together "'except that one time when I slept with you "'in your bedchamber at Skog?' "'Some time later, Sarah Ireck shouted across the courtyard "'that now it was Monday, "'and then the women came to lead the bride to bed.' Kristen was so tired that she hardly had the energy to resist, as she was supposed to do for the sake of propriety. She let herself be led out of the loft by Fru Asild and Girit of Skog. The groomsmen stood at the foot of the stairs with burning tapers and drawn swords. They formed a circle around the group of women and escorted Kristen across the courtyard up to the old loft. The women removed her wedding finery, piece by piece, and laid it aside. Kristen noticed that at the foot of the bed was draped the violet-blue velvet dress that she would wear the next day, and on top of it lay a long, finely pleated, snow-white linen cloth. This was the wimple that married women wore, and that Erlande had brought for her. Tomorrow she would bind up her hair in a bun and fasten the cloth over it. It looked so fresh and cool and reassuring. Finally, she stood before the bridal bed in her bare feet, bare-armed, dressed only in the ankle-length, golden-yellow silk shift. They placed the crown on her head again. The bridegroom would take it off when the two of them were alone. Ronfred placed her hands on her daughter's shoulders and kissed her cheek. The mother's face and hands were strangely cold, but she felt sobs bursting deep inside her breast. Then she threw back the covers of the bed and invited the bride to sit down. Kristen obeyed and leaned back on the silk pillows propped up against the headboard. She had to tilt her head slightly forward because of the crown. Fru Asseld pulled the covers up to Kristen's waist, placed the bride's hands on top of the silk coverlet, and arranged her shining hair, spreading it out over her breast and her slender naked arms. Then the men led the bridegroom into the loft. Munon Bardson removed Erlon's gold belt and sword. When he hung it up on the wall above the bed, he whispered something to the bride. Kristen didn't understand what he said, but she did her best to smile. The groomsmen unlaced Erlon's silk clothing and lifted the long, heavy garment over his head. He sat down in the high-backed armchair, and they helped him take off his spurs and boots. Only once did the bride dare look up and meet his eyes. Then everyone wished the couple good night. The wedding guests left the loft. Last to leave was Lavrins Birgolfsson, who closed the door to the bridal chamber. Erlon stood up and tore off his underclothes and threw them onto the bench. He stood before the bed, took the crown and silk ribbons from Kristen's hair, and placed them over on the table. Then he came back and climbed into bed, and kneeling beside her on the bed, He took her head in his hands, pressing it to his hot-naked chest as he kissed her forehead all along the red band that the crown had made. She threw her arms around him and sobbed loudly. Sweet and wild, she felt that now it would all be chased away—the terror, the ghostly visions. Now, at last, it was just the two of them again. He raised her face for a moment, looked down at her, and stroked her face and her body with his hand, strangely quick and rough, as if he were tearing away a covering. "Forget," he begged in an ardent whisper. "Forget everything, my Kristen. Everything except that you're my wife and I'm your husband." With his hand, he put out the last flame and threw himself down next to her in the dark. He was sobbing too. I never believed, never, in all these years, that we would live to see this day. Outside in the courtyard the noise died out, little by little. Weary from the ride earlier in the day and bleary with drink, the guests wandered around a while longer for the sake of propriety, but more and more of them began to slip away to find the places where they would sleep. Ronfred escorted the most honored guests to their beds and bade them goodnight. Her husband, who should have been helping her with this, was nowhere to be found. Small groups of youths, mostly servants, were the only ones remaining in the dark courtyard when she finally slipped away to find her husband and take him along to bed. She noticed that Lovrens had grown exceedingly drunk as the evening wore on. At last, she stumbled upon him as she was walking stealthily outside the farmyard looking for him. He was lying face down in the grass behind the bathhouse. Fumbling in the dark, she recognized him. Yes, it was him. She thought he was sleeping, and she touched his shoulder, trying to pull him up from the ice-cold ground. But he wasn't asleep, at least not completely. What do you want? he asked, his voice groggy. You can't stay here, said his wife. She held on to him, for he was reeling as he stood there. With her other hand, she brushed off his velvet clothes. It's time for us to go to bed too, husband. She put her hand under his arm and led the staggering man up toward the farm. They walked along behind the farmyard buildings. You didn't look up, Ronfred, when you sat in the bridal bed wearing the crown he said in the same voice. Our daughter was less modest than you were. Her eyes were not as shy when she looked at her bridegroom. She has waited for him for three and a half years, said the mother quietly. After that, I think she would dare to look up. No, the devil take me if they've waited, shouted the father, and his wife hushed him, alarmed. They were standing in the narrow lane between the back of the latrine and the fence. Lovren slammed his fist against the lower timber of the outhouse. "'I put you here to suffer ridicule and shame, you timber. I put you here so the muck would devour you. I put you here as punishment because you struck down my pretty little maiden. I should have put you above the door of my loft.' and honored and thanked you with decorative carvings, because you saved her from shame and from sorrow, for you caused my Ulfhild to die an innocent child. He spun around, staggered against the fence, and collapsed against it with his head resting on his arms as he sobbed uncontrollably with long, deep moans in between. But she could not console him. Husband! Oh, I never, never, never should have given her to that man. God help me, I knew it all along. He has crushed her youth and her fair honor. I refuse to believe it. No, I could not believe such a thing of Kristen, but I knew it all the same. Even so, she is too good for that weak boy who has shamed both her and himself. I shouldn't have given her to him, even if he had seduced her ten times, so that now he can squander more of her life and happiness. What else was there to do? said Ronfred in resignation. You could see for yourself that she was already his. Yes, but I didn't need to make such a great fuss to give Erland what he had already taken himself, said Lovrenz. It's a fine husband she has won, my Kristin. He yanked at the fence, then he wept some more. Ronfred thought he had grown a bit more sober, but now the drink took the upper hand again. As drunk as he was, and as overcome with despair, she didn't think she could take him up to the hearth room where they were supposed to sleep. It was filled with guests. She looked around. Nearby was a small barn where they kept the best hay for the horses during the spring farm work. She walked over and peered inside. No one was there. Then she led her husband inside and shut the door behind them. Ronfred piled the hay up all around and then placed their capes over both of them. Lawrence continued to weep off and on, and occasionally he would say something, but it was so confused that she couldn't understand him. After a while she lifted his head into her lap. My dear husband, since they feel such love for each other, maybe everything will turn out better than we expect. Lovrens, who now seemed more clear-headed, replied, gasping, Don't you see? He now has complete power over her. This man who can never restrain himself. She will find it difficult to oppose anything that her husband wishes. And if she is forced to do so one day, then it will torment her bitterly, that gentle child of mine. I don't understand any longer why God has given me so many great sorrows. I have striven faithfully to do his will. Why did he take our children from us, Ranfrid, one after the other? First our sons, then little Ulfield, and now I have given the one I love most dearly, without honor, to an unreliable and imprudent man. Now we have only the little one left. And it seems to me unwise to rejoice over Romborg until I see how things may go for her. Ronfred was shaking like a leaf. Then she touched her husband's shoulder. Lie down, she begged him. Let's go to sleep. And with his head in his wife's arms, Lovrens lay quietly for a while, sighing now and then, until finally he fell asleep. It was still pitch dark in the barn when Ronfred stirred. She was surprised she had slept at all. She put out her hand. Lovrens was sitting up with his hands clasped around his knees. Are you already awake? she asked, astonished. Are you cold? No, he replied, his voice hoarse. But I can't sleep any more." Is it Kristen you're thinking about? asked Ronfred. It may turn out better than we think, Lovrens, she told him again. Yes, that's what I'm thinking about, said her husband. Well, well, maiden or wife, at least she lay in the bridal bed with the one she had given her love to. Neither you nor I did that, my poor Ronfred. His wife gave a deep, hollow moan. She threw herself down next to him in the hay. Lovrens placed his hand on her shoulder. But I could not he said with fervor and anguish. No, I could not act toward you the way you wanted me to, back when we were young. I'm not the kind of man. After a moment, Ronfred murmured, in tears, We have lived well together all the same, Lovrens, all these years. So I too have believed, he replied gloomily. His thoughts were tumbling and racing through his mind. That one naked glance which the groom and bride had cast at each other, the two young faces blushing with red flames, he thought it so brazen. It had stung him that she was his daughter, but he kept on seeing those eyes, and he struggled wildly and blindly against tearing away the veil from something in his own heart which he had never wanted to acknowledge. There he had concealed a part of himself from his own wife when she had searched for it. He had not been able to, he interrupted himself harshly. In the name of the devil, he had been married off as a young boy. He had not chosen her himself. She was older than he was. He had not desired her. He had not wanted to learn this from her. How to love. He still grew hot with shame at the thought of it. That she had wanted him to love her when he had not wanted that kind of love from her. That she had offered him everything that he had never asked for. He had been a good husband to her. He believed that himself. He had shown her all the respect he could, given her full authority, asked her advice about everything, been faithful to her, and they had had six children. He had simply wanted to live with her, without her always trying to seize what was in his heart and what he refused to reveal. He had never loved anyone. What about Ingen, Carl's wife at Brú? Lovrens blushed in the darkness. He had always visited them when he traveled through the valley. He had probably never spoken to the woman alone even once. But whenever he saw her, if he merely thought of her, he felt something like that first smell of the earth in the spring, right after the snow had gone. Now he realized it could have happened to him too. He could have loved someone too, but he had been married so young, and he had grown wary. Then he found that he thrived best out in the wilderness up on the mountain plateaus, where every living creature demands wide-open space, with room enough to flee. Wary, they watch every stranger that tries to sneak up on them. Once a year the animals of the forest and in the mountains would forget their wariness. Then they would rush at their females. But he had been given his as a gift, and she had offered him everything for which he had never wooed her. But the young ones in the nest, They had been the little warm spot in his desolation, the most profound and sweetest pleasure of his life. Those small blonde girls' heads beneath his hand, married off, that was what had happened to him, practically unconsulted. Friends, he had many, and he had none. War, it had been a joy, but there was no more war. His armor was hanging up in the loft, seldom used he had become a farmer. But he had had daughters. Everything he had done in his life became dear to him because he had done it to provide for those tender young lives that he had held in his hands. He remembered Kristen's tiny two-year-old body on his shoulder, her flaxen soft hair against his cheek, her little hands holding onto his belt while she pressed her hard round forehead against his shoulder blades when he went riding with her sitting behind him on the horse. And now she had those ardent eyes, and she had won the man she wanted. She was sitting up there in the dim light, leaning against the silk pillows of the bed. In the glow of the candle, she was all golden. Golden crown and golden shift and golden hair spread across her naked golden arms. Her eyes were no longer shy. The father moaned with shame and yet it seemed that his heart had burst with blood for what he had never had, and for his wife, here at his side, to whom he had been unable to give himself. Sick with compassion, he reached for Ronfred's hand in the dark. Yes, I thought we lived well together, he said. I thought you were grieving for our children, and I thought you had a melancholy heart. I never thought that it might be because I wasn't a good husband to you. "'Ronfred was trembling feverishly. "'You have always been a good husband, Lovrens.' Hm. Lovrens sat with his chin resting on his hands. "'And yet you might have done better if you had been married as our daughter was today.' "'Ronfred sprang up, uttering a low, piercing cry. "'You know! How did you find out? How long have you known?' "'I don't know what you're talking about,' said Lovrens after a moment. His voice strangely dispirited. I'm talking about the fact that I wasn't a maiden when I became your wife, replied Ronfred, and her voice was clear and resounding with despair. After a moment, Lavrins said in the same voice as before, I never knew of this until now. Ronfred lay down in the hay, shaking with sobs. When the spell had passed, she raised her head. A faint grey light was beginning to seep in through the holes in the wall. She could dimly see her husband as he sat there with his hands clasped around his knees, as motionless as if he were made of stone. Laverence speak to me, she whimpered. What do you want me to say? he asked, not moving. Oh, I don't know. You should curse me, strike me. It's a little late for that now, replied her husband. There was the shadow of a scornful smile in his voice. Ronfred wept again. No, I didn't think I was deceiving you. So deceived and betrayed did I feel myself. No one spared me. They brought you. I saw you only three times before we were married. I thought you were only a boy. So pink and white. So young and childish. That I was, said Lawrence, and his voice seemed to acquire more resonance, and that's why I would have thought that you, who were a woman, should have been more afraid of... of deceiving someone who was so young that he didn't realize. I began to think that way later on, said Ronfred, weeping. After I came to know you, soon the time came when I would have given my soul twenty times over if I could have been without blame toward you. Lovren sat silent and motionless. Then his wife continued. "'You're not going to ask me anything?' "'What good would that do now?' "'It was the man who—' "'We met his funeral procession at Feginspreka "'when we were carrying Ulfhild to Nidaros." "'Yes,' said Ronfred. "'We had to step off the road into the meadow. "'I watched them carry his spear past "'with priests and monks and armed men.' I heard that he had been granted a good death, reconciled with God. As we stood there with Ulfhild's litter between us, I prayed that my sin and my sorrow might be placed at his feet on that last day. Yes, no doubt you did, said Laurence, and there was that same shadow of scorn in his quiet voice. You don't know everything, said Ronfrid, cold with despair. Do you remember when he came out to visit us at Skog that first winter after we were married? Yes, said her husband. When Bjorgulf was struggling with death. Oh, no one had spared me. He was drunk when he did it to me. Later he said that he had never loved me. He didn't want me. He told me to forget about it. My father didn't know about it. He didn't deceive you. You must never believe that. But Trond. My brother and I were the dearest of friends back then, and I complained to him. He tried to threaten the man into marrying me, but he was only a boy, so he lost the fight. Later he advised me not to speak of it, and to take you. She sat in silence for a moment. When he came out to Skog, a year had passed, and I didn't think much about it any more. but he came to visit. He said that he regretted what he had done that he would have taken me then if I hadn't been married, that he was fond of me. So he said, God must judge whether he spoke the truth. After he left, I didn't dare go out on the fjord. I didn't dare because of the sin, not with the child. And by then I had, by then I had begun to love you so. She uttered a cry as if in the wildest torment. Her husband turned his head toward her. When Bjorgulf was born, Ronfrid went on, Oh, I thought I loved him more than my own life. When he lay there struggling with death, I thought, If he perishes, I will perish too. But I did not ask God to spare the boy's life. Lavrin sat for a long time before he asked, his voice heavy and dead, Was it because I wasn't his father? I didn't know whether you were... Or not, said Ronfred, stiffening. For a long time both of them sat there, as still as death. Then the husband said fervently, In the name of Jesus, Ronfred, why are you telling me this now? Oh, I don't know. She wrung her hands so hard that her knuckles cracked. So that you can take vengeance on me, chase me away from your manor. Do you think that would help me? His voice was shaking with scorn. What about our daughters? He said quietly. Kristen, and the little one. Ronfred said nothing for a moment. I remember how you judged Erlon Niklausen, she murmured. So how will you judge me? A long, icy shiver rippled through the man's body, releasing some of his stiffness. You have now... We have now lived together for almost twenty-seven years. It's not the same thing as with a man who's a stranger. I can see that you have suffered the greatest anguish. Ronfred collapsed into sobs at his words. She tried to reach out for his hand. He didn't move, but sat as still as a dead man. Then she wept louder and louder but her husband sat motionless, staring at the grey light around the door. Finally she lay there as if all her tears had run out. Then he gave her arm a fleeting caress, and she began to cry again. "'Do you remember?' she said in between her sobs. "'That man who once visited us while we were at Skog, the one who knew the old ballads?' Do you remember the one about a dead man who had come back from the land of torment and told his son the legend of what he had seen? He said that a great clamor was heard from the depths of hell, and unfaithful wives ground up earth for their husband's food. Bloody were the stones that they turned. Bloody hung their hearts from their breasts. Lovren said nothing. For all these years I have thought of those words, said Ronfred. Each day I felt as if my heart were bleeding, for I felt as if I were grinding up earth for your food. Lawrence didn't know why he answered the way he did. His chest felt empty and hollow, like a man whose heart and lungs had been ripped out through his back. But he placed his hand, heavy and weary, on his wife's head and said, Earth has to be ground up, my Ronfrid, before the food can grow. When she tried to take his hand to kiss it, he pulled it abruptly away. Then he looked down at his wife, took her hand, placed it on his knee, and leaned his cold, rigid face against it. And in this manner they sat there together, without moving and without speaking another word. This concludes our presentation of Kristen Lovren's Daughter, Book 1, The Wreath. Thank you for joining us each week as we present this masterwork by Nobel laureate Sigrid Unset. Books two and three of this trilogy are available to borrow from the Gals Guide Lending Library. Please join us again next week for a roundtable discussion as a gang of Gals Guide book aficionados discusses this book, the author, and audio recording in general. Thank you.